Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for giving us your word so that we can know you as you really, really are. And I pray that this morning you'll help us to gain a deep, deep grasp on that truth. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, I spent a couple of days doing a ride-along with a deputy sheriff in Multnomah County, uh, Oregon. His particular job that he was appointed to was to police truckers. And so during those two days, we pulled over many trucks. And his job was to inspect the trucks to make sure they were safe. But then also, especially to check the brakes and the tires. And what is scary is how many of those trucks had faulty brakes and bad tires. Now, whenever he found a truck that was had bad brakes or, or, or tires, on some occasions he would give them instructions to follow him to the next town and to follow him to a place where they could have the repairs done on the trucks. In some cases, the trucks were so bad that he, he forced them to stop the truck and leave it right there, and they had to call for a tow to come and to tow them to the nearest place to get repairs done. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but truckers are not like librarians. When you deal with a trucker, you're not dealing usually with a very gentle person. And when he would make them stop their trucks at the side of the road or have them towed, these men's income was deeply threatened because they have to keep those trucks on the road. They earn money by the hours that the trucks are on the road. And so driving with him, I was, I've got to tell you, I was like, where do I hide when one of these guys loses his temper with you? His name was Hirsch Lang. He was my brother-in-law. And Hirsch showed an incredible balance between strength and civility, between power and kindness almost, so that he could pull these over. And there, it, was, it was absolutely clear that they were dealing with a man who had lots of muscle and lots of restraint. So that he, he, he had lots of muscle just in his own persona, the way that he would approach the truckers and deal with them and speak to them. He also had lots of muscle on his hip and a big shotgun in the, in the, in the car as well, so he had a lot of muscle with him. But he also had a lot of restraint in dealing with them and never saw him lose his cool, never saw him fight back and argue back at all. He just simply dealt with them, sir, this is what the law is, this is what you're going to do, here's how we're going to do it, let's do it. It's interesting that all of us want our policemen to have lots of muscle and lots of restraint. Isn't that true? You want the policeman to be strong enough to protect us, but we also want him to be strong enough to respect us at the same time. You you want the same thing in a father, in a parent. You want your parents to be strong enough. You want your dad to be strong enough to provide for you and your family. Strong enough that he would fight and protect you. But you want him to have lots of restraint as well. So that when he disciplines you, it's done carefully and not done in a way that harms you at all. And we also want that, in a sense, of God. We want a God who's got lots of muscle and lots of love. We want and need a God who is big enough to answer the issues of life. We want a God who is big enough to handle life for us and with us. We want a God who is big enough to understand the universe And to understand human nature. We want a God who is really big. But we also want a God 
who is really full of love. And one of the strange, sad things about us is most of us carry wrong pictures of God in our minds, which tend toward one extreme or the other on those. Sometimes many of us grow up with a concept of a tyrant, of a God who's got lots of muscle, not much love. And he's a tyrant. He actually, this God doesn't really like me. Isn't that true? He really is annoyed with me most of the time. He's ticked off with me. He's always watching me going... This is the God who requires me to obey, requires me to do rituals, and requires me to, to, to go through, through disciplines and stuff like that because he's a God of power. And that's an extreme. There are others of us who grew up in churches where God was a God of love. He's like the Wizard of Oz. Lots of smoke and mirrors and power and stuff like that. But when you draw back the curtain, he's just this kindly little old grandfather who says... I'll let children be children. This is what my laws are. Oh, you don't like my laws? Okay, let's discuss them. And let's, you see, you see the two extremes? We end up, most of us, with juvenile pictures of God somewhere along that continuum. Juvenile pictures that unfortunately govern our lives. And it's amazing how often when you're talking to people and they'll describe God, and you go, you know what? That's not the God who really is. That's not the God you find in the scriptures. That's not the God who invaded this earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Most of us have perverted pictures of God, twisted pictures of God. And that's why the scriptures are full of passages that help to correct our wrong concepts of God. And one of those passages, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this passage, is Psalm 23. Isn't that interesting? The psalm that... If we, if we ever memorized scripture, that's probably the first psalm we memorized. And it's a psalm that is most often used at funerals. So it's the psalm that sort of t- touches our life at the beginning and it's read over us at the end. But Psalm 23 was intended for every single day in between. Psalm 23 doesn't just deal with when I pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Oh, and I'm dying now, Psalm 23 applies. Not at all. Psalm 23 applies to every single day of our lives. And so we're going to spend some time just learning who our God is from Psalm 23. It's called the Shepherd Psalm. And the, 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 the psalm was written by David, we believe, at the end of his life. At the end of his life, after he'd gone through all of his experiences, David was sitting down and thinking back over his life. And I'm just going to read this to you. This, I think, is from Chuck Swindoll. I copied it years ago, and I have no idea where I found it, but Chuck has taught me so much, so I'll give him credit for this too. I want you just to listen. David had experienced life in all its extremes. He had lived out under the stars, and he had lived in the plushest palace. He had been hunted by men who hated him and knew the loyalty of men who loved him. He had fought wild animals and even wilder men in hand-to-hand combat. Then he used those same hands to write poetry and to play music. He had known the beautiful love of a devoted wife and had committed adultery. He had spared the life of his greatest enemy, Saul, and had taken the life of his greatest friend, Uriah. He had watched his infant son die and had wept over his most beloved son, who died leading a rebellion against him, both deaths being a consequence of his own sin. He was a man who lived life to the full, both in its beauty and in its horror. And now, as an old man, thinking back on the good old days and the bad, 
he realized that running right through the good and the bad was one consistent reality, the faithfulness and mercy of his God. David remembered how God's love had never abandoned him despite the fact that he had always been weak, often been foolish, and had often wandered away. As these thoughts filled his mind of a God who faithfully cares and guides his child, they conjured up a familiar image in his mind's eye, an image from his boyhood, the image of a shepherd out in the fields caring for his flock. And David reached for his pen and merged the image with his memories of God to capture in poetry a message to us about our shepherd in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? And doesn't that help you to understand and to appreciate Psalm 23 to a degree never before? Read it with me, okay? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loyal love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We're going to spend time going deep into this passage because it's so loaded with the truths that we need to know about our God up in heaven. Interesting, it's the shepherd's psalm, but halfway through it switches. The first half speaks about God as our shepherd. The last half speaks about God as our host. And so there are two images actually contained within it, but we'll pick up on that later on. The first thing we need to understand from the psalm is that the shepherd who is being spoken of in this passage is Jesus. And so there's to be no doubt at all, and I want to show you, that the shepherd is Jesus himself. Notice that word is put in capitalized. The word Lord is capitalized in most of our, our newer versions. That's in order to cue us that there's a specific word being used here for God himself. As you study through the scriptures, there were two primary words for God. One was a common word that was used for God, El. It was just a general term that was used for God. And it was a word that described the power and majesty and authority of God. With the Jews, they actually made it plural. So rather than just speaking about El all the time, they called him Elohim. Elohim is plural, and it's the plural of majesty. And it was the way of, of the Jewish people reflecting on the fact that they believed their God was greater than all the other gods. The other people could call their gods El, but the Jews called him Elohim. They often added the uh, pronoun, or not the pronoun, what do you call it? Uh, the, the word the. What is that? Article. Thank you. They often added the, the article, the, ahead of Elohim, ha Elohim, which meant the real and only God. And often, El was used in combination with other terms like El Shaddai, El Elyon, different ways of describing the characteristics of who God was. And so, as you read through the Bible thousands of times, God is referred to in terms of his power, in terms of his majesty, in terms of his authority, in terms of his distance, in a sense. He is different 
from us. We are human. He is Elohim. And by the way, in Elohim, the plural, there's a hint of the Trinity, which shows up clearly in the New Testament. But there's a hint that God is one and God is three all at once. And so that was the word that was often used to describe God. There was another name that was used for God, and we don't know how to pronounce it. Before this morning is over, I will tell you how to pronounce that word with absolute authority. I know how to pronounce it. But let me explain why. The letters YHWH in Hebrew were the personal name that God gave to Israel. But God had told them in the Ten Commandments never to take his name in vain. And so the Jewish people were afraid of in some way using that name disrespectfully. And so, they, for example, they treated with so much respect that when a scribe who copied the scriptures wrote that name, Y-H-W-H, which were the consonants of this name, when he wrote them down, he would first, before he wrote them down, he would have to go and take a bath so that he was clean. Then he would pick up his pen and he would write Y-H-W-H and he would break the pen so it could never be used again. And you can imagine where they had passages where that name showed up several times. He was really clean by the end of the day because he'd have to take a bath and then he'd write it and break it in pieces. Now, as the, the, the ancient Jews, as they wrote the scriptures, they never put the vowels in. They just wrote the consonants, two words. And because they all knew the language, it's the same thing with English. We just wrote words using consonants. You'd be able to fill in the vowels. And so all they did was, in the early manuscripts, all they had were the, were the consonants. They didn't have the vowels at all. But when they got to that word, the Jews were so uh, afraid of disrespecting the name of God that when they saw YHWH, they would use another term entirely in its place. Adonai, which means Lord. So if you were reading the scriptures, when you saw YHWH, you wouldn't say whatever that word should be pronounced as. You would say Adonai. And later on, in some of the manuscripts, later on, they began to take... Are you guys with me? This is very important. They began to take the consonants from YHWH and the vowels from Adonai and merge them together. And our early English translations came up with this horrible combination, Jehovah. His name is not Jehovah. Jehovah is a corruption, a use of the, of, the, of the consonants and the vowels that were put together. His name is not Jehovah. But again, as years went by, people forgot. Well, how do you pronounce that name? What are the proper vowels that belong with him? The most common one right now is Yah, Yahweh or Yahweh is a way of pronouncing his name. Remind me to tell you exactly how to pronounce it before the day is over, but it's there. Yahweh. And you'll notice that in our translations, it's put there as Lord. Now, why is this important to know? It's because that is the word that David chooses. Of all the names for God, as he writes the psalm, he chooses this name for God. Here's why. Remember when Moses met God at the burning bush? And God told him he was to go to, back to Egypt and he was to go back and to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And he was to tell the people to follow him out of Egypt. We find Moses was not exactly your most bold person at this point in time. He's rather timid. And he said to God, and he, previously he had plenty of authority in Egypt. Now he knew he had none. 
Previously, he may have had authority even among the Jews, but now he had none. He had no authority at all. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now, all the gods of the Egyptians had names. Ra, the sun god. They all had names. And all of the peoples who created their own gods gave their gods names. And so he says, well, when I go to them, and the God of your fathers is, is, is telling me to lead you out of the land, what's your name? And God's answer is both enigmatic and exciting. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, has sent me to you. Now, do you see how enigmatic that is? And by the way, that last I am has sent me, that's it, Y-H-W-H. I am, Yahweh, has sent me to you. So let's try and figure this out. God says, I am who I am. What does this, that tell us about God? No one else like him. I am who I am. And in fact, it also says, I'm the only one, okay? There are no other gods out there. I am who I am. There's no one else like me. There's no one else out there. I am who I am. What does I am tell us? <laughs> hey, he's real, okay? I exist. I am real. I am here. I love that when people say there's no absolute truth and we, there's no God. Well, you just made an absolute statement. If you say there is no God, you've just made an absolute statement. So therefore, you're saying there are absolute truths. So maybe there is a God. Sorry, we're going in circles. I am. I am is simply, it may be a complete sentence. I am. I'm here. I exist. Or it could be the beginning of a sentence. I am dot, 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 dot. I am whatever my people need. And it's all wrapped up. This word, and you'll see as we go along, as we study this, it's, it's an absolutely rich concept. But God said to him, when you go to my people, I want you to tell, tell them that YHWH has sent me to you. Okay? I am. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, there's LLL showing up, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I'm going to be remembered from generation to generation. He said to the Jewish people, I'm giving you a name that is going to be just for you. And only you will be able to call me by this name. And only you will call me by this name through all generations. No other people were allowed to call God YHWH. No other people were allowed to call him, I am. And they never did. It's interesting. Other cultures around them never used that name for God. But the Jews did. And it was locked into part of them. And God said, from now on, I want you to always remember me by this name. And this is the name to use. It is my personal name that you do use with me. Now watch this. Angel came to a girl named Mary. And he said, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you will name him Jesus. The name Jesus takes YHWH and adds to it the Hebrew word Shua, which means Yahweh 
saved. And he said to her, you to call him by the name Yahweh saves. And in fact, if you take that and transliterate it into English from the Greek, it comes across as Joshua. Isn't that interesting? His name is not really Jesus. His name is Yohoshua. Joshua. And a lot of Joshua's in the scriptures, but this is the key, primary, Joshua. Sometime later, the Jews, Jewish leaders confronted Jesus and said, By what authority are you doing these miracles? By what authority do you dare to contradict our rabbis? By what authority are you teaching? And Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, you need to understand that when he was speaking, he was speaking Aramaic. And as he spoke to them in Aramaic, he said to them, Before Abraham was born, Yahweh. And the Jews went nuts. At that moment, they understood. He was saying, I am the personal God of Israel. And they tried to stone him. They weren't able to. He was able to get away from them and stop them from doing that. But Jesus said to them, Before Abraham was born, Yahweh, I am. I am the living God of Israel. That was such a statement. They didn't miss it. They understood exactly what he was saying. And Jesus later on said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep follow me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the shepherd. So when we read Psalm 23, Jesus is the Lord. You want to know how to pronounce Y-H-W-H? English translation today? Jesus. Very simple. It's been brought full circle. So we now know how to pronounce the personal name of God. We should call him Yohoshua if we wanted to go back to the transliteration. But Jesus is a literal, is a legitimate translation of it today. So... We read Psalm 23, the first principle to keep in our minds, that when we read Psalm 23, we're talking about Jesus. The Jesus who came to earth, gave his life for us, died, was buried, resurrected, and raised to the right hand of God the Father. That's who the shepherd is that is leading us. Now, there's an implication in that. If he's the shepherd, what are we? Sheep. That means we are sheep. And it's like, David, come on. You you could have chosen another one of the images. David, please. You you, you, you were a king. You could have said, the Lord is my king. And that would mean that what are we? Princes and princesses. The Lord is my king. We'd have been, oh, good. Okay, that means, that implies that we're princes and princesses. Actually, Peter tells us we are. That's later on. But right here, we're going to say to him, David, you're going to say, the Lord is my commander in chief, which would mean that we are what? Warriors, soldiers. And actually, we call that in the New Testament too. But do you get the point here? He says, the Lord is my shepherd, which means that, and we're told this explicitly in Scripture, we are Sheep. Have you ever seen somebody teaching his sheep how to roll over? (laughs) Have you ever seen Petco advertising sheep training exercises? Sheep are not trained because, I'm sorry about this, but 
Sheep are dumb. Sheep are really, really stupid creatures. Totally dumb. Farmer friend told me that, that, that during the wintertime, they'd have to bring the sheep in if there was a snowstorm because what would happen is that the wind would blow the sheep and the sheep would just move with the wind <laughs> until they ran up against a fence. And then they would stand at the fence while the snow piled on top of them and suffocated them to death. They're so dumb, they don't even know to come in out of the rain. They, they would just stand there and they would eventually die. Sheep are really dumb. Sheep are defenseless. They have no claws. They have no teeth to, to really fight back with. The smallest dog, the smallest dog is an unbelievable threat to the biggest sheep. They're absolutely defenseless. And they're dirty. Birds clean themselves. Cats clean themselves. Dogs clean themselves. Sheep get dirty and they just stay dirty. Totally oblivious to the fact that they're dirty. And they're directionally challenged. They cannot find their own way home. Ever. My son brings his, his two little boxes over to my house about once a month. My son brings them because he needs to do his laundry. So he brings the dogs and his laundry over to my house once a month. And those little dogs, even the puppy... The second time that puppy came to my house, he let her out of the car. The, 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 the puppy ran up two flights of stairs and straight to my door. She found her way home. She knew. A sheep, you could do it a thousand times, and the sheep would just stand there like, I don't know where to go. One of the problems with a sheep is that they will put down their nose, find some grass, and begin to eat. And they will follow the grass wherever the grass leads them. And they'll follow it until they're totally, absolutely lost. They're directionally challenged. Someone has said that God created sheep so that he would have a metaphor to show us what we are like. <laughs> that's kind of insulting, don't you think? It's like, that's what... But he wants us to understand that deep down inside of us, spiritually, we're dumb in the sense that we can't figure God out. No religion has ever figured God out. God had to reveal himself to us. And the God who is revealed in the scriptures is a God no other religion ever invented and no people could have ever invented. Without God revealing himself to us, we would not know at all what he's like. And we're defenseless. Have you ever thought about the fact that the tiniest little blood clot can take your life out? One little blood clot that gets loose inside of your bloodstream. And bye-bye, Raymond. You're gone. Just a little blood clot. We're defenseless. We can't live forever. And dirty... The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That we have, we have contaminated ourselves with sin. And the Bible says we can't find our way back to God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We wandered away from God. But God came in search of us. Jesus said this about the crowds. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were dirty and dumb, like sheep without a shepherd. Is that what it says? Not at all. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And they were harassed and helpless by their religious leaders. Their religious leaders harassed them with their rules and regulations and laws. Their religious leaders, instead of pointing them to a God of mercy, pointed them to a God who was a tyrant. Their religious leaders, instead of helping them to learn to love God, taught them to fear God only. 
and literally to hate him. And they were helpless. They didn't know how to find their way. Their religious leaders were supposed to lead them. And Jesus felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We'll see in the weeks to come how much Jesus as the shepherd encounters our lives. But I want you to notice from this psalm this very important thing. The shepherd initiates and pursues the relationship with the sheep. Notice that? The shepherd initiates and pursues the relationship with the sheep. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because he initiated it. And he will never let you go. He will pursue you to the end of your days. How do we know that? Watch what the psalm teaches us. That he feeds us, he leads us. He restores us, he guides us, he guards us, he comforts us, he vindicates us, he honors us, he blesses us, he pursues us. It's all there in the psalm. That he is the one who starts the process. He is the one who keeps the process going. And it all comes back to him. Right now you guys should be going, Yahoo! You should be jumping on your pew and saying, Raymond, stop preaching. I want to run outside and tell the world about this, this shepherd. He initiates the relationship with us, and he pursues the relationship with us all the way through. Jesus said, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? That's how you and I become believers, because he came after us. We didn't think we were lost. We were quite happy being dumb and dirty and helpless. We didn't know we needed a shepherd. But we were lost, and Jesus came in search of us. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We're going to go to the communion table in a moment. And this is just to commemorate the fact that Jesus laid down his life for us. We deserved hell. We deserve to be punished for our sins. But when Jesus was nailed to the cross, God legally transferred our sins to Jesus Christ. And Jesus became legally culpable for our sins. And then he was punished as a substitute for us. He died in our place. And the bread represents his body that was broken. And the wine represents his blood that was spilt. These are symbols that God gave us, tactile symbols, in order for us to remember that the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. We could never have become princes and princesses. We could never have become warriors for God had the shepherd not first come and saved us and brought us back into his family. Lots of muscle, lots of restraint. That's our God. There's a description of him in Isaiah. It goes like this. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. Notice the capital Lord. And his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. This is looking all the way into the future, looking down to the time when Jesus comes back again. And he's going to come and he brings his reward with him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. That's our God. He's got plenty of power. And he's got plenty of love. And the first challenge from this is, have you accepted his invitation? Have you said, yes, I want to be one of your sheep? I believe in you, Jesus. I want to be one of your sheep. I want to come into your pen. And if you've never yet done that, I'll give you an opportunity in a moment. There's no ritual. You just simply say to God, I quit. I resign as being sheep of my own life, shepherd of my own life. 
And Jesus, I want you to be my shepherd from here on out. It's that simple, change of mind. But there's also a challenge here, and we'll, we'll develop it more in the weeks to come, and it is this, that God is recreating you and me into people who are like Jesus. So he wants us to become shepherds as well. We're under shepherds, which is kind of like underwear. You keep it hidden, but, you know, it's not the real thing. But God wants us to grow so that we become under shepherds, that wherever we go, we touch the lives of others, and we begin to shift them. I told you about Hirsch Lang, my former brother-in-law, stopping uh, stopping truckers. On one occasion, he was chasing a man, and the man turned around and fired point-blank at at, uh, Hirsch. Kept pulling the trigger of his gun over and over and over again, firing directly point blank at him. So Hirsch drew his own gun and shot the man. The man crawled away from him. The bullet actually went right through the man and paralyzed him from the waist down. The man crawled away from him, and they eventually found him because of the blood trail through the snow. No gun. They eventually found the gun. As he crawled away, he threw the gun into uh, into a chest of drawers. He threw it into a drawer, uh, and they found the gun. And they found it was fully loaded. All the bullets were there. But it was one of those Saturday night specials. The, the, the trigger never hit the bullet itself. The trigger just kept missing the bullet. And he could have killed Hirsch. But instead he went to prison. It's a long story, but I'll shorten it for you. When that man was in prison, Hirsch went to meet with him. Led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And for years afterwards, would go to the prison and disciple that man in his walk with Jesus Christ. I'm so glad I've known a man who was a shepherd, who had plenty of power, but also had plenty of that kind of compassion, that he would go and he would minister to a man who would try to kill him and lead him to faith and then disciple him. And so the challenge is twofold. Are you one of his sheep? He knows your name, and he may be calling you today to come into his particular pen. And if you know him, Our job on this earth is to represent him in the lives of the people that we encounter. So, let's pray together. Before we go to the communion table, we've been taught that we should examine ourselves so that we don't treat it as an empty ritual. And one way to be sure that you don't treat it as an empty ritual is to be sure that when you come here, you come because you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're ready to do that, you may want to simply say something like, Father God, I barely understand this. But I understand that Jesus died for me. I understand he took my sin upon himself. And that he was punished instead of me being punished. I understand that he rose from the dead. And that he's alive today. And Jesus, I want you to be my shepherd. I don't like the picture of being a sheep, but it's true of me. And I want you to be my shepherd, and I want you to take over my life and lead me from this time forward. And so I believe in you, Jesus. I put my faith in you. And if you pray to prayer like that today for the first time, or you want to, but you need some more information, be sure to speak to me or to Pastor Dave just to be sure that that we can sit down with you to, to lead you through there. Another part of coming to the table prepared is to confess our sins.
to just simply ask God to cleanse us. Because he's faithful and just and will do it. Your sins have been punished already. Just sometimes we've got some dirt on our feet that needs to be washed off. Just spend a moment just preparing to come to the table, would you? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the incredible truth that it is you who initiates the relationship and that you pursue us every day of our lives. And you've brought us together here and you're in this room by the presence of your spirit to meet with us at this table. So we come now in Christ's name.